Father, we do continue to pray for Alyssa, not knowing what uh, caused her to be woozy and almost pass out, but you do. You are the great physician. We thank you that we can trust you with every detail of life, that you bring everything into life to accomplish your glory and for our good to those that walk uprightly. Pray that uh, you would guide and direct us in our study of your word this morning. Captivate our hearts with the glory of Christ, the privilege of being part of your church. We'd ask that your word would find teachable hearts in our midst and that we would respond in, in faith, seeking for you to help us in faithful obedience. Equip us to do the work of ministry for the glory of our great King, the head of his church, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. As you're turning to Titus chapter 1, we will not get through, you know, if we were to look at how far we're going to get, we're not going to get much beyond one verse, and though you might think, well, that's not very far, I trust that it will be quite expansive in our hearts as we comprehend the way God shepherds and leads His church for His own praise and glory. And right before we get into the Word, let me share somebody's testimony with us about her own, own rescue operation that God enacted. Her name is Cheryl. Cheryl didn't grow up in church, but became a Christian in her 30s while married and busily raising two active children. And soon after being miraculously redeemed by Jesus Christ, she found a church that promised to be a wonderful place for spiritual growth and for making friends with other fellow Christians. But what happened at that church actually brought Cheryl great sorrow. It wounded not only her, but many Christians throughout that region. Cheryl's story of heartache illustrates why many Christians find themselves in need of the mandate before us in Titus chapter 1 and verse number 5. At first, the church looked terrific. She enjoyed the preaching and the programs for her children. The people were friendly and relationships grew quickly. But then little cracks appeared. She witnessed spats when she began attending church meetings and watched people grow alienated and isolated. The tension spilled over into Sunday worship as more and more people retreated to the back singing quietly to themselves. After worship, they quickly beelined their way to the parking lot. She didn't pay attention to it at the time, but her church was dying, and the question was why? It was living out a, a culture of worldliness that reared its head every time decisions had to be made. It's a church culture most that would uh, read books on biblical eldership live through. They know about it. Having lived apart from Christ all her years, Cheryl first assumed that this was normal part of church. To some extent, it felt familiar, but at the same time, she felt scared and even powerless. Some in her church tried to calm her fears by explaining that occasional spats and disagreements are marks of a spiritual, healthy church. But she knew better because the church ended up breaking her heart. Without anybody really meaning to, the people grew loveless. 
They passed each other in the hallways with only a nod and sat apart from each other on Sunday mornings. The frequent church meetings exposed frustrations as people vented disappointments and differences. Then all too quickly, it seems that people just disappeared. That's when the inevitable came. The church held meetings to quote-unquote clear the air. But nothing really got cleared. Instead, people got locked into sides on issues. It all became too much and the flock scattered in every direction, disillusioned and deeply wounded. The church just fell apart and Cheryl left it too, discouraged, feeling empty, unimportant, and especially unloved. The sudden loss of so many important relationships stung too deep for words. So for months she wandered from church to church looking for a fellowship that would provide genuine Christian love, stability, and unity. Over time, her heart grew distant from the Lord and other Christians. She even started getting cynical. Eventually, she and her family attended another church in her home state with a different sense about it. She couldn't quite put her finger on it right away, but she knew this church was a safe place for believers in Jesus Christ. What she found were true shepherds. What she found was congregational peace. And what she found was the calm authority of Scripture ruling all things. Now, several years later, Cheryl wrote to share her testimony to relay to you the joy she found. She said, the rewards of living out the Word of God are glorious. I must remember, though, to pray often for my elders. They've got an enormous responsibility to God and to the flock. Praise God for biblical elders. She said, the Good Shepherd showered His restorative love upon us when we lived in a godly, healthy church. He led people like Cheryl from a, being a troubled soul to lie down in green pastures where she restored, was restored by quiet waters. Her, wor, her story puts to words many of your experiences. Maybe you were in Cheryl's predicament in a spiritually unhealthy church. A place to call home. Well, there are marks of a healthy church that we are looking at in both adult Sunday school as well as in uh, the book of Titus. Titus being one of the pastoral epistles. An end to church carnage. Enough of that. You might wonder, why would we spend an entire message looking at just one verse? You might be tempted to say, I get it. Yeah, 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 elders. The Bible teaches elders. I think if churches got it, there would not be other forms of church governance. If churches got it, leadership positions would not be filled with such ungodly men which are proliferated in churches. If churches got it, churches wouldn't have the position of elder without the function of elder, godly, qualified, servant, shepherd leaders. A lot of people, a lot of churches say Scripture is authoritative. Some would even go so far as to say it's sufficient like we studied for three weeks in Psalm 19 just recently. And even those who would say that Scriptures are sufficient 
would say it's not specific on church polity, how God leads His church. I want to urge you to compare and consider the need of our day with the need of Titus's day at Crete, that we might greater, greater embrace what some would call the Titus mandate. We want to see in principle, in practice, how God leads His church. So we'll look at the need of our time, which will take just a couple of minutes, and then look at the need at Crete. The need of our time, as we exegete the time that you and I live in, we need to bring the Word to bear upon it. That which is authoritative and is sufficient and speaks specifically to how God shepherds His people along. Many churches affirm the inspiration and the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture, yet they substitute, or they add to, or they delete, as we talked about in that recent series on the sufficiency of Scripture. There are many who think that the Scriptures are clear, but not on the issue of polity. I was involved in some dialogue just this past week on Facebook in regards to this. Paul writes to his son in the faith, Titus, in Titus 1.5. And notice what he says to him. In this charge, this mandate that was unequivocal in nature. He says, Titus, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Stop for a moment. Before we go any further, unless you think that this is something that easy, you know, it's, that it's easy for an elder to preach on an elder form of church government, we just want to be faithful with the text to see what God has to say because I'd submit to you Scripture is clear and that the church is only as safe. The church is only as healthy to the point that biblical eldership, biblical polity is followed. We can measure growth and the health of a church. Yes, God has been faithful and kind and merciful in other church polities. But many of you have seen the, the warning signs in churches, testimonies similar to Cheryl that I opened up with. You've attended them, so have I. Where there's conflict, there's politics, and there's unqualified leadership, to mention just a few. The church can be the most dangerous place in the world where you've got wolves in sheep's clothing. As Jesus called apart for Himself disciples and said, I'm sending you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. And as Paul lays charge to the Ephesian elders, he said that there are going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. Church can be the most dangerous place in the world. Sunday could be the most dangerous time of the week as churches everywhere are led by unqualified men. How would you like going to a church, or uh, maybe we'll put church in quotation marks depending on what they stand for, but how would you like to go to a church knowing that your offerings fill the pockets of a false teacher or fill your soul with hell's teaching? As we're reading through the Scriptures together as a church, we have found ourselves recently in Ezekiel, 
And lest you think, lest you think that this prophet only addressed the shepherds of his day, as you read down through in Ezekiel 34 this week, just listen in as I remind you what we read this week from, from Ezekiel 34. And see if this has not been what you've observed in some of the churches you've been in. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel anyway, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy, say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost, but with force, with severity, you've dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. So I'm against the shepherds. I'll demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep so the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth. And praise God for the way God is delivering Himself today in giving shepherds to His church to feed the flock because you can't guard untaught sheep. So we were reading that passage just this week. What is the source of disease, according to the Apostle Paul, that he will address the diseased churches on Crete? What is the source of the diseased flock in Israel that Ezekiel addressed? Leaders who have been upsetting families. Later on, when we get down to Titus 1 verse 11, he's saying, here's why I give you this mandate. That cannot be waffled on, Titus. These men must be silenced. Verse 1, of going back to Titus 1. They must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. That's the source of the disease. Most Christians, when they go to a church, they make an assumption we ought not to make in our day and age. There must be more discernment, but there are Christians that assume they are under truly spiritual leaders, and they are dead wrong in many cases. Leaders who claim to be saved but aren't. And this is not just a disease of our day, but a disease in Titus' day. Verse 16, at the end of chapter 1, he says of them that they profess to know God. They say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian minister. But by their deeds, they deny Him being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Those are scathing remarks. In that day, as in ours, Christians were in churches 
that acted just like the world, just like their culture. You say, where do you get that from? How about verse 12? And this is borrowing. Paul borrows the language of the Cretans themselves. This isn't something that the Apostle Paul is concocting in his own mind or under divine inspiration of the Spirit of God. He's borrowing a phrase from just the peers around Crete. He says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, a false prophet, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. They're acting just like the world. How can we practice the world's ways and expect to live like Christians? This sermon would be part eight of what we've been seeking to unpack in adult Sunday school and what are distinguishing traits of a healthy church? What do we look for? What if you are part of a family? What if God moves your family unit on to Buffalo or to Texas or to Ohio like God has done in this past year among our midst? What are you going to look for in a church? I would submit to you one of the things that we must find to be part of a healthy church is a plurality of godly leadership. Biblical eldership. Something that we ought to look for. Something we ought to be grateful if God provides and be a part of. So what was the need at Crete that speaks to the need of our time? Crete was an interesting place. Paul visited Ephesus and he left Titus there to supervise the churches. And then he went back to, went to Macedonia, which is northern Greece. So we're just backing up a little bit, Titus being part of what's known as the pastoral epistles. And it's from northern Greece and Macedonia that he wrote 1 Timothy, to remind Timothy to preach sound doctrine, to avoid false teachers, and to emphasize the conduct of public worship. That's why uh, in uh, his address to Timothy, he'll say that uh, there are certain things that ought to take place and certain things that ought not to take place. For instance, he, he addresses male leadership, that uh, uh, a woman's not to usurp teaching authority over a man. And he tells Timothy that as we structure, as we organize the church to be a faithful ministry, one that uh, exacts God's blessing upon it. So he writes to Timothy, but he also writes to this man, Titus. And though there are some commentators that would say that, uh, he didn't, that t- uh, Paul didn't spend long on Crete, that he only came to Crete on a voyage to Rome, uh, they'd base it on some things that I wouldn't go along with. Uh, for one, uh, they'd say there's no record of any believers. Hello, let's... You know, if we were to go back to Pentecost in, uh, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 11, we are told that there were Cretans at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So they went up to Jerusalem, they got saved, and they came back to their home island, and they started churches. They started assemblies, congregations for worship. Paul did visit Crete about 65 A.D. on his return from Spain. And he left Titus there to supervise the church, or might we say churches, that, can, that made up the church. He went to Nicopolis and Achaia, which is southern Greece. 
according to Titus chapter 3 and verse number 12. He spent the winter there. And either from Macedonia or Nicopolis, either northern Greece or southern Greece, we don't know, uh, but he wrote this letter to encourage and direct Titus. This was his son in the faith that we don't know much about. But he accompanied Paul to Jerusalem at the time of the Apostolic Council. You remember what happened there? Uh, uh, Titus uh, was forbidden. Paul refused circumcision. He wasn't going to cave into the Judaizers. He would become Paul's, be Paul's emissary to the church at Corinth during Paul's third missionary journey. But Paul left him here. He left him on the island of Crete, which was a large place, to organize the churches. His charge is given in verse 5, which we're looking at today. And the men that would make up these, this eldership, the qualifications we will look at after this week in the following verses. But you notice that uh, he was to overhaul the church, change it con- to conform. Make sure, Titus, that you put in charge, set in order what remains, point elders in every city as I directed you. That was his main objective. That was his purpose. That's the purpose statement for the book. In the meantime, make sure you rebuke false teachers that are present and give instructions on proper conduct. Make sure you preach sound doctrine, chapter 2, verse 1, and encourage good works among the saints. But the gospel had been proclaimed. Paul was there proclaiming the gospel. Some of them had already been up to Jerusalem. They'd, they'd come to faith in Christ. The gospel had been proclaimed. Little groups of disciples started gathering all around the island. Meeting places arranged. But no official organization had been affected. Things were left far from finished. And God does not leave His work unfinished. So as many of these Christians that were meeting would come back from Pentecost, come home, many churches be started, each one of those individual local assemblies, local churches which make up the church of Jesus Christ were to come into conformity to the mandate. Titus was given God's comprehensive plan to go to every church in the Mediterranean island of Crete. According to I. Howard Marshall, that great commentator, at least 35 cities and towns were on that island. This was no small place. And he gave absolute authority, mandated by the Apostle Paul, on behalf of the Lord, and thus it is for us today, a holy and simple prescription to make sure that we set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as given by apostolic direction. This is no mere suggestion. This is no recommendation that would be nice if we got an inclination or under the optimal circumstances, yeah, it would be nice if we had elders, but we don't. To the Apostle Paul, it's a matter of life and death. A matter of spiritual life or death. 
Drive away the false teachers. Pay them no mind. Give them no hearing. Give them no pulpit. And come alongside the believers with the word to admonish them. You know, this island of Crete held a dominating position in the Mediterranean Sea. It was no insignificant landmass. Some 157 miles long and from 7 to 30 miles across, it was marked out for an important role in the history of the eastern Mediterranean. Big area with lots of churches on its soil. And since even in the secular world they experienced dissensions, the church is made up of those same sorts of people. So those dissensions would come into the church. Different ideologies, internal dissensions. Uh, in the ancient times, there, there was, uh, even ethnically, it was, a, it was a bright and flourishing area. Paul was correct the Cretans, by the admission of one of their own, says they, they're, they're difficult people. And they're getting saved and joining the church and learning how to get rid of their difficulties. And since I mentioned some Jews were present at Pentecost, this no, dent, no doubt contributed to a Judaizing influence. What some of the distinct, uh, dissensions that were probably taking place in those churches on Crete? Judaizing. Controversies among believers. I want it this way. No, I want the blue carpet. You want the red. You fill in the blanks of all the stories that go on in our democratic churches. The men there who were really wolves in the pulpits feasting on the flock. You know, I'd, I'd drawn our eyes to verse 10 and you know what? My eyes stopped on one of the first words to characterize these rebellious men, these wicked shepherds. Many. Many. There's a lot of them. Men who were wolves in the pulpit feasting on the flock, there's a lot of them. Dangerous men outnumber and outweigh the faithful ones. And thus goes the church. So to put it in an easy-to-understand format... Let me just hang the truth on two words. Paul's words to Titus, his mandate, his purpose on being on the island of Crete. You are first of all to amend and then you are to appoint. Let's look at that first one, amend. It's twofold. Put what remains in order. And on the surface, as we're reading through the text of Scripture, that might sound like Titus is just going to be bringing a little bit of completion to the work. A little, drawing, uh, pulling uh, tight some of the loose ends in ministry. Just tweaking or finishing a couple of items. At this church, we teach the significance of the original language in exegesis, in Bible study, Bible interpretation. And here's where I draw one of those points. I think that the Greek helps rivet our eyes on the real issue here. The, he's not just tweaking a few things that were left undone here. The Revised Standard Version does a better job in helping us see the sinister plot of what's going on. They help bring it out. He says, amend what is defective. The RSV brings that out. What is defective? 
Cretan churches were defective. That original word is even stronger. Use the synonyms of dangerous. These churches were dangerous, they were sick, they were broken. This word is only found here in the New Testament. It's a compound word. Epidurathosai. Epi meaning in addition. Dia meaning through. And ortho to set straight. So let's think of this word. Titus. You're to amend the defective. Amend those ministries who call themselves churches but are dangerous churches. Who are broken ministries and sick churches. This word is used to describe cataclysmic disasters like a locust plague. That is this word. Or even to use forest fires. Jesus used it in uh, telling the rich young ruler that his soul was in eternal danger. Danger! Dangerous were the churches on Crete. Dangerous to set foot on, to walk through the doors of. So Paul's concern was here at Crete they'd reached this dangerous condition just 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. Not long. It doesn't take long for a heresy to creep in or any damning dangers. Paul's concern was for health, the health and safety of the church. So Titus, amend every church. Take care of it. Bring health to them. This is a medical term that we're all too familiar with. You know what ortho stands for. Orthodontics, orthopedics, orthotics. There are surgical and dental arts that repair hurting and broken body parts. My mother x-rays for an orthopedist. To show what's broken so that they can put it back together again after skiing accidents, all that fun stuff. What do orthodontists do? You'd never know I'd been to an orthodontist. My teeth are so crooked because I didn't wear my retainer. But what what does an orthodontist do? They correct bad bites. They put the teeth straight where they're supposed to be. They align crooked teeth. What's an orthopedic do? They set broken bones and straighten bent limbs. That is the term here. Titus. Amend the broken, the diseased, the unhealthy. Titus was assigned the task of correcting and setting straight certain doctrines and certain practices. This is where we call, what do we call correct doctrine or correct teaching? Orthodoxy. Healthy teaching. Because it gives spiritual health when it's embraced. This was of grave concern to Paul in Titus. Sound doctrine which we'll track down later on in our study. And judging from some of the admonitions that will follow his mandate here, the problems were both of a moral nature and a theological, and it involved church leaders. So Titus, first part of your job description, amend. Second part, appoint. To carry out the directive, he must amend and arrange for a selection of elders. That term, appoint, kathiste me, means to set down, establish, arrange, appoint, 
or put in charge. It does not mean ordain in the sense of laying on of hands, though this might have been this was probably done. Here's the, here's here's the here's where it usually comes out in churches. Well, how are we going to get elders if we're supposed to have, be led by a plurality of godly qualified men, according to First Timothy three and Titus one? Well, we've got to vote them into office, right? Wrong. Some would suggest that the method of such choices was by congregational selection or election, and they'd base it on passages in Acts 14.23 or 2 Corinthians 8.19. That was not the case. You get involved in a discussion with somebody on church polity, and they're going to say, can't you flex? Isn't there room for different forms, different flexibility? Here's what, here's what was said this week in, our, in uh, the discussions that uh, some of us were having. That there is no clear polity in the New Testament. We're not told how elders were selected and appointed. There's just an emphasis on qualifications as delineated in 1 Timothy 3 and here. So, okay, I'll, I'll give you that point. We've, we do have qualifications that are clear. We've got a plurality of men that oversee an elder. They're used interchangeably in the New Testament, used to describe one office. Maybe overseer emphasizing more the duty of the office, whereas elders depicts the honor and the dignity of the office. But they're clearly parallel to those given here for elders. So the question remains, what about input by the congregation? What, what, is, what is our congregational input into it so that we can make sure the right guys get into leadership. As you peruse through uh, church history and where voting actually entered the church, it didn't happen until about the 1600s. I'm working on getting another article as I continue to study this, but I think that voting is something that is read into Scripture not only in cases of church discipline, which I've experienced, where we, we were actually in a ministry where it's brought to congregational vote whether somebody is in sin and whether we will obey or not obey. That is how wicked the, a tool can be used in disobedience to the Lord. But it can also be used in, in like selection of leaders. Churches are many times more concerned about their rights, quote-unquote, than they are about the qualifications. Some of the questions asked this week in a dialogue on church polity, so so where's your authority? Where does authority lie? Are we holding high that authority resides in the changing opinions of man or in the sufficient Scriptures? When, When eldership is removed from the authority... And we don't have full charge eldership where they are placed underneath the congregational vote. So just think with me through this. When they're placed underneath the congregational vote, by whose authority do things proceed? The authority at that point is the congregation. Not eldership following Scripture. The tradition of 
you know, I, I'd mentioned in elementary remarks, you know, we do uh, lighting of the, the nativity readings, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing against Scripture that we're, we're violating when we do that. It's not a tradition that has been raised to the th- same authority of Scripture. But we're warned in Scripture about the tradition of the elders, and that's what, the, what elicited the conversation this week on church polity. What are some of the traditions of the elders in our day and age in 2014? Alternate and opposing sources of authority. You know, the, the leaders of Jesus' day, they claimed it wasn't an opposing source, but Jesus said that they nullified direct commands of God. Today, if a church is, is, is voting into office leadership that is not biblically qualified, what have they done at that point? At that point, they've disobeyed God, they've disobeyed Scripture because they're in a system that makes allowances for that. Have they not violated the command of God? Or voting whether or not to pursue church discipline, that's non-negotiable. The only mention we find in the Bible of voting was in Paul confessing his sin in Acts 26. If voting is the right of every believer, which in a lot of congregational churches, here's the, here's the way it, it goes. We, we want to preserve everyone's individual right to vote. And if everyone that's a Christian is indwelt by the Spirit of God... Why aren't you allowing your children to vote? Why do you force a believer that they, they cannot vote until they're, say, what, what typical age, voting age, 18 years old? And since, uh, so are we not uh, uh, causing frustration on the part of the, the Spirit of God? When we look at voting practices, women have only been allowed to vote in the last 3% of church history. So are we to say that in 97% of history that the Holy Spirit's been frustrated? So a return to the Titus mandate is the need not only for Crete, but the need of our day. Titus, make sure you amend and make sure you appoint. So what kind of input? In spite of those who would think that Scripture is silent and doesn't lay claim to one form of church government, I think that Titus 1.5 opposes that view. That suggests God's Word is authoritative and it is sufficient and God has given enough inf- information as to how He will lead His church. It's an apostolic command that would replace every other church polity on Crete. since we have no examples of congregationalism. He was to appoint them. That was one of the primary assignments given. And the the choice of those men was not less to his own human judgment and his own discretion, or should we say his own popularity. He was to seek the Holy Spirit. And let me qualify that in just a moment. We've said here in this church time and again that uh, we don't make elders. God does. God raises up elders. We simply recognize them. Let me remind you of Paul's farewell to the elders of his day in Acts 20, verse 28. Paul makes clear that the selection of elders is 
divine prerogative of the Spirit of God. He, he says there in, the, in qualifying his statements, he said that the Holy Spirit's made you overseers. God's the one that raises up elders. God makes elders. We simply recognize them. That's the issue. Even earlier in the book of Acts, as prophets and teachers in Antioch of Syria, he says, we were ministering to the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So it was only by direction of the Holy Spirit. And after further fasting and prayer, did those church leaders send out Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. The appointment of elders by the apostles and their envoys like Timothy and Titus was always done while seeking the mind of the Spirit, the wisdom of the Spirit. And then and only then were those men affirmed in the church. So you say, what, Pastor Parker, your answer is the Spirit. Well, how does the Spirit communicate? We know it's not through mysticisms or intuition or the gut feeling. The Spirit is silent without the Word. So there are various forms of church governance throughout church history as we peruse it. You might wonder, is there some conspiracy since, since eldership is in a minority? Is there some conspiracy to cover up eldership? No, but it hasn't been given the, the emphasis that God intended, which He made clear to Titus in this day. What are the three types of uh, the way that uh, churches are governed? One is the Episcopalian form of church government. They argue for authorities and bishops. There is the representative church government. They claim their authority is in their elected representatives. What about in congregational polity? They claim their authority resides in the congregational vote. So the question again comes back, where's your authority to do what you do in the church? Chapter, verse. Chapter 1, verse 5, Titus. Full charge eldership is what Scripture should convince us of. Some call it elder rule. I prefer elder-led because, uh, you know, rule has that baggage and people uh, think about the ruling in our day and age of uh, the Gentiles and the manipulation games that go on. Even in the earliest of all inspired church history documents, First Clement, which was written at the same time that John wrote Revelation. So the, the earliest document on the history of the church most preeminent, written by Clement, he said this. He said, They went about preaching through the countries and cities. They appointed their first fruits to be elders and deacons over such as should believe after they had tested them in the Spirit. That is in First Clement 42, verse 4 of that document. And though it doesn't have the same weightiness of Scripture, we would put it down here. It's speaking in the same day in which John was banished to the Isle of Patmos. The words are striking. All apostolic churches were led by the elders that had been appointed, either by the apostles or thereafter by other elders. To further quote Clement, several sentences later he gets to the heart of his letter explaining why believers should submit to those appointed into eldership. 
And he goes back to Christ showing that the pattern of elder appointment is a permanent rule never to be lost. He says, quote, And our apostles knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that there would be strife over the office of an overseer. For this cause, therefore, having received complete foreknowledge, they appointed the elders, and afterwards they provided a permanent rule that when, they, when these should fall asleep, other approved men should succeed to their ministry. Though there, those, therefore, who were appointed by them or afterward by other eminent men with the consent of the whole church, have ministered unblameably to the flock of Christ in lowliness of mind, peacefully and with all modesty, and for a long time have borne a good report with all these men we consider to be unjustly thrust out from their ministry. So he reasons that it's a great sin to force out godly overseers since they were tested and they were appointed by men. Those men being people like the Apostle Paul, approved by the apostles. Only approved men appointed elders. So we're given enduring instruction on exactly how future elders were to be appointed. Just do they fill the qualifications? Do they desire the office of a bishop? And so just as Christ had the authority to appoint apostles, and the apostles had authority to appoint the first elders, so too all future elders had the authority to appoint all other future elders. So there's various forms of church government, and it comes down to the issue of where's the authority to do what we do. Notice that Paul addresses the authority issue. As the apostle commissions Titus, he said, first you amend, then you appoint as I directed you. Another compound word, diatasso, appointing thoroughly. It has the sense of arranging, prescribing, or giving an order. This word speaks of authority. This is no mere suggestion. Titus, when you get around to it, make sure you raise up some elders. No. Put it in place as I delivered it to you. Every city on the Isle of Crete was to come into consistent conformity. Much of the island had been evangelized at this point and a number of local churches established. And they were to conform and come under the authority of Scripture and God's directives for governments. They were not to stand out on their own, stand aloof from the other church. Thus, when churches are involved in church planting, are they, are they involving themselves in schism, dividing the body of Christ, or uniting them under the rule of Jesus Christ? There are so many splits and plants in our day and age, there needs to be an awful lot more of obedience and conformity. That was the issue, that was the need of Crete, and that is the need of today. God raises, God qualifies, we simply recognize and affirm whom God is raising up. We come alongside them, we thank God for them. Can a, can a church really ever be set in order without godly leadership? I would say to you, absolutely not. That's why this is a mark of a healthy church. That of a plurality of godly qualified leadership. It is a biblical understanding of leadership that we need. 
A local church is never going to rise above their leadership. In a host of churches, as you diagnose the disease, as you diagnose why are they so unhealthy, at the root of much of it is ungodly leadership. That's the underlying problem. We, so we continue to pray for elders, for God to raise up elders. We continue to pray for God to develop as He is doing presently. I'd encourage you to study church polity on your own. Read some of the stories. If you haven't got the stories that you came to this church from other churches involved in the other forms of church government, all the divisions and schisms, see, see Scripture's clear teaching. How can we practice the world's ways and expect to live like Christians? Eldership is everywhere in the New Testament. There is more instruction given to eldership in the New Testament than communion, baptism, marriage, child-rearing, and work all combined together. So God's got a lot to say. It's important to Him. It ought to be important to us. I'm not seeking to diminish flexibility. But this is a serious matter, beloved. A serious matter of protecting Christian lives. Titus was denied flexibility. The stakes are too high. Because other, other forms of polity foster and embed all the carnage that gets left behind. Eldership in spite of weakness and misabuses, misappropriation and unbiblical strategies, because they are men at best, is still God's ordained method, God's ordained plan. We are awaiting the one true shepherd that is coming to sit on David's throne, who will have no weeks, no, will have no warts and forbles like the present-day elders do. Would you pray with me as we prepare for the Lord's table? God, you've given us one short verse to contemplate this morning, a matter of serious consequence as to how your church is structured, how it operates, how it conducts ministry. Oh God, might our church be healthy? Might there be churches that are raised up to flourish because they cultivate a biblical understanding of how you lead your church through qualified men, servant leaders, who are at best men, but are the men that you will use to affect your people, to shepherd your people into holiness and into your grace. Thank you for the privilege. We pray that as we partake of your table, that we reflect upon your greatness that you accomplished that we could not accomplish for ourselves. You lived the perfect life under your Father's law that when you die, it would be a satisfactory sacrifice for all sinners who would believe. We place our confidence in that. We pray in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.